Well, it's been quite a week, hasn't it? How many of you thought you would see the events that have actually unfolded this week take place? Anybody? Yeah? I'm talking about the Toblerone changing shape, obviously. (laughs) Anybody? I never thought we'd get to see it. I mean, those triangles, I thought they were here to stay. And, uh, oh. No, seriously. Um, It's been an an interesting week. But today, it's a very important day. And uh, my poppy's on my coat. Uh, It's not quite 11 o'clock, but it's difficult to judge the the service times. But we are going to pause for a moment to remember with others. There may be a cannon going off in about five minutes' time, uh, just as I'm back into preaching again. But let's just pause for a moment. It's a great opportunity to share with uh, millions of people as we thank We are thankful and remembering those who fought for our liberty, Um, but we'll pause and I'll lead us on from this because I think this is an important time uh, this morning. So if you just be quiet for a minute, that'd be great. Remembering, it's a very important thing to do. And uh, we might ask all sorts of questions about why people fight. Why, I'm not going to get political on you, why wars happen. Um, But I think individuals go into battle for all sorts of reasons. There'll be some for whom the the national cause is the big one, the compelling reason. There'll be others who are fighting for friends and family. There'll be others who are fighting uh, for something that they believe in, that they Uh, maybe for freedom or something that's important to them, some ideology that's important to them. Uh, Whatever it is, all sorts of people are choosing different reasons. But for us on this this day, amongst others, we have an opportunity to pause to remember the freedom which we enjoy, the democratic freedoms we enjoy, to be able to have life and liberty, to be able to do things like voting, and to be able to make choices fairly freely within our country. And there's an interesting thing about freedom, and it leads into what I want to talk about today, uh, that when you're fighting for freedom or you're defending freedom, you're actually defending the right of other people to do things that you don't agree with. That's what freedom brings us into. I enjoy the freedom of this country, and I would, I would argue and try and defend the liberty that we have in this country, and that means that I'm defending the right of other people to do things that I wouldn't do myself. Does that make sense? There's an election just taken place, the other side of the pond. You may have heard about it this week. It's been on the news a little bit. And the wonderful thing about democratic freedom is that people have the right to express their decision to vote for somebody, and and if you didn't vote for them, someone can get in that you didn't want to get in. That's how democracy works. 
That's how our democratic freedoms work. And like it or not, that's what happens. And actually, people fought and died that we could make those decisions whether we like the result of them or not at times. That's it. And that's still worth fighting for. For example, we all know that exercise is good for us, don't we? And yet, it's a good thing that we live in a free society where it's not yet illegal not to exercise. Can you imagine? If the police were around at your door, you haven't been out for a run today. We've, we've checked, and you've not been doing your exercise. And, oh, okay, you've got to go out and do it legally. I'm glad that things that are good for us, you have a freedom not to do, even though it's actually not good to end up doing those things. The series we've been looking at for the last few weeks has been looking at um, this thought of the view from here, living as God's children. What does it mean to live as the children of God? What does it mean to live as though, or what does it mean to, sorry, start again. The series we've been looking at, the view from here, has got us to this point where we're looking at living as God's children. That's That's the theme for this week. So up until now, we've been looking at, uh, I've been going through the book of Ephesians particularly, and looking at how God sees things versus how we see things, and where there's a bit of a gap sometimes. And we've, we saw Brian helped us uh, a couple of weeks ago, and then I was doing something else similar to that the week before, about be, being God's children, being called to be God's children. And I, I want to make it practical now as we move on through the book of Ephesians, because uh, Paul doesn't just finish by telling us this wonderful truth that we're God's children. He goes on to tell us how to live this out. And this is where it gets a little bit challenging. This is where he's being honest and robust, and there's stuff that's going to be said today that you may disagree with. There's going to be stuff that I say today that you may think, oh, that's a bit uncomfortable. But that's important that we look at these things that are in the Bible together. Living as God's children starts, as we've been hearing recently, with this incredible invitation to come and know what it is to have God as our Father. To know what it is to be made whole and right and to be welcomed into his family and adopted and secure in the family of God. But that follows up when not just being God's children and enjoying that, but living as God's children. The Bible presents us with two ways to live. And this is Jesus' teaching I'm going to take us back to. Jesus said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Jesus speaks about, in a sense, a chasm that's fixed between a broad way and a narrow way. I don't think they're actually as separate as that. I think they probably intermingle and at times are indistinguishable when you're looking uh, from an outside perspective. But there are people going in different directions because of the choices that they're making through their lives. And Jesus says that that some are on a broad, and um, they've gone through a wide gate and they're on a broad road that's leading to a place called destruction. They're, They're leading to a place which isn't good and others have gone through a small gate and are walking on a narrow road that is leading them to life. I want to look at this today. And we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 5. And and really, we're going to notice what this looks like when we walk through that gate. And all of this is by God's grace. We we don't do this because we're good enough or clever enough. We we do this because of God's grace. 
We find this route that Jesus has told us about because God highlights it to us and he welcomes us in. He allows us to walk on this route that leads towards him. And Ephesians 5 picks up on the theme of what it means to live as God's children. I haven't got all the verses on the screen. I'm going to read it through and pick up some principles from it. And there will be some verses on the screen in a bit. It says this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And have nothing... And Sorry, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from your spirit, from the Spirit. Speak and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus pictures these two ways to live, a, a broad way and a narrow way. And, and Paul, in his writings, is really talking about two, he's talking about a, a throne. There's two ways to live, but there can only be one throne. And I want to pick up on something very interesting that he does in this passage. You see, Paul speaks the same principle, but uses a different illustration. He writes this, For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. And I, and I paused when I was reading that to myself in my own devotions in my preparation for this, you see, there's something very interesting that Paul does in this passage. passage. He says that there's, there's actually two thrones that we can, we can put somebody on, but really you can only ever have one throne. You can only have one king. Uh, and we try sometimes and keep two going, but there's actually only one. And, and he's saying here that if you're immoral or you're impure or you're greedy, you're an idolater. That means there's somebody who's worshipping somebody that isn't the true God. There's only one true God and he deserves all our worship. He's, he's the one who has the road to life mapped out. He's the one that invites us to come and be his children. He's the one that says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He's the true God. And, and you can worship any other kind of God you want, but that's an idol and it's a false God. Because there is only one who's the true and living God. We read through the Old Testament that uh, and there are prophetic passages which challenge this kind of behavior that people were making their own idols out of wood. And, and then they were setting them up and then they were worshiping them. And some of the prophetic books point out the, 
the sort of irony or dilemma that the idol makers have in that they know they've created this thing and yet they bow down and worship it. And that seems unusual, to worship your own creation. And the Bible talks about how God is the creator. There is no one like him. He's the creator God. There's, there's nothing that compares to him and no one who can come close. He's the one who sits on the throne of the universe. And Paul's saying here that if you're immoral or impure or greedy, you're like one of those idolaters. You're like somebody who's made themselves an idol and is worshipping it. Interesting. You see, if you're immoral or impure or greedy, I'm going to suggest that actually... The reason we couldn't be those things is because we can be living for our own satisfaction. We can be, if you're greedy, you want stuff, you want more stuff, you want it now. You're living to feed yourself, not just with food, it's not about that. It's about a, a, an attitude of acquisitiveness, wanting more things and taking them on for ourselves. And if we've got that attitude, we're, we're setting ourselves up and saying, the goal of my life is to please myself. Because I have a desire that I need to fulfill. That's the goal of my life. If we're living in immorality, we're setting our own desires above anything else. And we're saying the goal of my life is to satisfy these desires that I have. They may go against God, but actually my desires are more important. And we become an idolater at that point. I want to ask a question of us today. Who is it that's on the throne in our lives? Who is it? You see, living a Christian life, becoming a Christian, becoming a child of God is not an upgrade. It's not like when your phone tells you that it's doing an upgrade and you wait for a bit and it's slightly whizzier and the colors have changed and it's a bit different when it's finished the upgrade. It's not, well, and it doesn't work and you have to buy a new one. That's a different problem. But, but, you know, when it's done an upgrade and it's slightly better and it's slightly prettier, Christian faith isn't like that. Christian faith is an invitation to have a relationship with the King of Kings to have eternal life and discover truth and freedom and liberty and wholeness. And that requires us to have one person on the throne, and that person isn't me in my life. And it's not you in yours. It's God. He's on the throne of our lives. And when Paul's writing here about these two ways of life, he's saying, well, there's two ways you can go. You can put yourself on the throne and satisfy your own desires, or you can put God on the throne and satisfy him. And you might think, Stuart, you're just... You're playing this out. We get this. We, we, don't, we understand all this. And yet, when I talk to people, not here, but when I talk to people and I say, well, what do you want out of life? Time and again, I'll hear people say, oh, I just want to be happy. And, and that sounds quite normal, doesn't it? Yeah. You ever heard people say that? Just want to be happy. As if that's a satisfactory goal to our lives that we might be happy. I'll say later on, but I think being happy is a wonderful fruit of the journey that we have through life. It's a wonderful accompaniment to where we're going, but it should never be our destination. What do you think? Yeah. If we set ourselves out to say, the goal, the destiny, the purpose of my life is for me, myself, to be contented and happy, my life's going to be very small. And my choices are going to reflect the fact that I am enthroned on my own throne that I deserve worship, that my happiness comes above anything else, and that the entire purpose of my existence is to make me happy. Folks, that's an empty way to live. 
It really is. It's a shallow way to live. It's an empty way to live, and it won't lead us to life. Jesus says that's the road that doesn't lead to God. Now, I'm not against happiness. The road to to walk with God is full of joy and deep rejoicing and, and excitement, but the goal isn't our happiness. The goal is that we follow Christ. And I think many of us have at times been sold something less than God's best. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, there's a whole load of stuff that we... I kind of skimmed over a little bit last time I spoke. But there's a whole load of stuff that we can do and the consequences of that. And I kind of pulled out some headlines, but I didn't really present it in this format. And and really, Paul gives us a list, and he says there's, there's three things that you can end up doing. You can either end up giving the devil a foothold in your lives and in the church, or you can grieve the Spirit of God, or you can follow God's example. And he lists there for the Ephesians, he lists them the the behaviors that end up in those places. And you can read it all in Ephesians 4 if you want to. Falsehood, sinning when you're angry, staying angry, stealing, unwholesome talk. All of those, he says, give the devil a foothold in the church community and in our lives. If you don't want to end up here, if we don't want to end up here, then we don't do the things above. Secondly, we can grieve the Spirit of God. And if we're holding on to bitterness or rage, or anger, if we're brawling, if we're slandering one another, then we grieve the Spirit of God. Now, we don't want to end up in those places. Those don't sound very nice places. Those sound very happy places to be. But you'll notice that the red things on there, on the top two boxes, are all about doing the things that I feel I have a right to do. You notice. When I'm angry, I'm angry. And I can jolly well tell them that they shouldn't have done what they did because I'm angry and I'm just going to tell them. And I can say what I like because I've been offended. And I say what I like because I'm upset. And it's all okay. And I'm going to harbor that bitterness that someone's hurt me and I'm going to hold on to unforgiveness as long as I want because it isn't fair. And all of that kind of stuff, all of those feelings, all that stuff that stays inside is all about us doing what feels right to us. And sadly, sadly, that that can lead us on a road to destruction because there's a better way. And as children of God, there's a better way. There's a better way that involves speaking truthfully and involves working working, uh, instead of just stealing. That's the alternative. It's either you steal or you work. And if you're working, you can share and be generous. And you can build others up and you can be kind and compassionate and forgiving. And all of those things don't flow out of me because of my desire. They flow out of me because they're good for other people. You notice the contrast. This side is all about me and what might feel good to me in a difficult moment. And this side is all about what I can do for others to build them up. What a difference. What a difference. The life we're called to live is bigger than us. And it's bigger than what we feel like doing in the moment. And it's bigger than just making ourselves happy and satisfying ourselves. We're called to something bigger. God has called us out of sin and shame and death because he's rescuing the world. And he's redeeming the world and he's saving it. God's mission to save the world is a radical one. And there's a danger that people sleepwalk to destruction inoculated with a little bit of happiness to keep them from thinking of anything else. 
And that's not enough. That's not enough. You know, I'm, I'm happy. I don't know about you, but I'm happy when I'm asleep, I think. Quite enjoy sleeping. I go to sleep very quickly, usually. Judith can take a little while, but I go to sleep very quickly. I, my head hits the pillow, and that's about it. I'm asleep. Now, I like to think it's got a, got a clear conscience. I think it's probably because there's nothing going on in my brain whatsoever. And I just hit the pillow, and that's it. The whole body and system shuts down, and I'm gone. But all of us know that sleep is not a pattern we can continue in forever. I like being asleep, but it's not good enough just to do the thing I like. It's not good enough, and I've been, I need to wake up, and all of us need to wake up and engage with God's call and God's purpose for our lives, to live differently from how we used to. The world needs rescuing, and God is about the business of rescuing the world. We're a generation called by God, set free by him to help set other people free. And it's not enough just to do the things I want. I need to do the things that God wants. So let's look at what it means to live a life of love, living as God's children. This is what Paul says. He says, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Follow the way of love. It's interesting, isn't it? The way of following God is different. This is the different path that's marked out for us. Not the wide way, but the narrow way that's there. The way of love. Paul is going to go on in a minute and clarify what this looks like. But I just want to give you the broad principle that everything I say from this point on is about living the life of love that we're called to do. Now, Paul's going to give us some examples of what that doesn't look like before we see what it does look like. Let's have a look. He says in Ephesians 5, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He then goes on and says this, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. He goes on again, um, about being unwise. It's up here. Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Uh, don't be foolish. Uh, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Uh, and that's the end of the don'ts. There's some really good positives coming up, but that's the end of the don'ts. I just want to take a few of these for a minute, and particularly the, the top few, because that, he's, he says quite a lot about those. Our culture today is one of sexual freedom. Our prevailing culture is of sexual freedom, permissiveness. You can do what you like as consenting adults as long as nobody else gets hurt. That's the basic premise of of our society. And we might think that that's quite novel, but actually the same is true in Paul's culture. It's not a lot different, actually, and and history hasn't changed us that much. And, And what Paul is indicating here is that what we think of as sexual freedom and other freedoms actually are death. Sexual death and other kind of death. And and it's leading on that broad road to destruction. It's leading to us being enthroned rather than God being enthroned. And this road to self-satisfaction and fulfilling my own desires and embracing my lusts and encouraging them and telling us each other to fulfill them as long as no one gets hurt, actually, he's setting out for us is not the call that God is placing on our lives to live as his children. But actually we're enthroning ourselves and placing ourselves on that throne. This week, I haven't got a leaflet with me. I picked one up earlier and I've dropped it again. 
But in this building, we're hosting an event on Tuesday, not organized by us, organized by Youth for Christ. And there's a Christian organization called the Romance Academy coming to town. They're coming here. They're going to do an event for parents and youth workers and anybody that's interested. And we got an, informa- we got an advert for this from our, our boys' school. And so from, from where they've gone to school, we sent an, they sent an advert out and, and we got invited to our own church to come and look at an event. So that was interesting. And the event is called Let's Talk About Porn. Let's Talk About Porn. That's the event. I don't know what they're going to say. I may or may not agree with what they're going to say, but I think most of us would agree that the, well, the topic they're talking about is incredibly important. You see, we live in a culture today where, which is so incredibly sexualized and actually stuff like pornography entices people into what's seen as sexual freedom, which actually isn't at all. And it's a, it's a bondage. It's, it's tying people up. It's, it's keeping them towards this path of death rather than a path of life. Pornography is a scourge which traps people and draws them deeper. And, and you may be thinking, well, yes, that's, that's, this, it's over here somewhere. That's like the horrible end of stuff. And I'd never, ever, ever do anything of this. But, but that's connected to everything else in our highly sexualized culture. And actually, it's, it's one end of it. I, I don't know how you guys, I don't know how you cope, but I drove to church today and I, I came... Up, up a Grosvenor Road, and I turn left at the car park, and I stop at the traffic lights, and I'm, I'm pulling round to, to come left, and all across the, the department store windows are pictures of women in underwear. Now, it's not pornography, it's advertising. And, and I can choose what I do with my eyes. I'm not going to blame the department store. It's up to me to deal with that. But as a guy, that's not always terribly helpful to us. That's not necessarily going to help me live out my life as a child of the king, and live a life free from sexual temptation, if, if actually I'm driving along going, oh, that's nice, bang. Might, won't help me driving probably either, will it? You see, this stuff is so normal that what I'm saying now might just think really, might seem really unusual. You think, Stuart, you're talking about adverts on a shop. It's just part of our culture. It's just what we do here. But that's how normalized it's become that actually this stuff is serious and wide-ranging. Our culture uses lust as a tool and promotes sexualized self-expression. And I'm not sure that's as helpful as we think it is at times. And I'm not sure we're as free as we think we are at times. When Paul is saying here, not even a hint of sexual immorality, he uses a, a, a particular Greek word. It's the word porneia. It's not pornography, though that would be included in what it means, because pornography didn't exist in the same way as we're talking about now. But this word porneia is the word for sexual immorality, and it's quite a broad word. The Jewish teachers that precede Paul and are around him at the time use this word for all sorts of activities. It's always activity, not inclination. Always activity of sexual immorality. Prostitution, sex outside of marriage, incest, homosexual sexual acts, adultery. It's a wide-ranging word, and there's no comment on attraction or orientation or feelings. The, the word is used about practice, what you do. Jesus also spoke on this issue, and he also used the same word. Jesus said this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile them. It's in the context of a discussion about how much you wash and don't. 
Paul says something in the passage I just want to take us back to. Where are we there? There. And I've got the good bits coming on the right in a minute, so don't panic. He says there, not even a hint of these things, sexual immorality, any kind of impurity or greed, not even a hint of them. And that might seem impossible. You think, wow, how, how can I not even have a hint of any of these things? I've just heard the list, and, and that seems quite severe, and not to even have a hint, not to be tainted by it. Goodness me, how do I do that? You may also be thinking, oh, Jesus and Paul were obsessed by sex. No, Paul's just writing about the stuff that was common in his day. It's the stuff that's all around him, and he's trying to paint a picture of what it means to live as a free child of God, and he's, he's saying, this is the reality, folks, and I'll pick some of the illustrations of what's around, and I'll, I'll show you a different way to live, and guess what, folks? The same things are around us today. Nothing's changed. Nothing's different. It's exactly the same. Paul isn't obsessed with these things. He's just trying to present a picture of what it might look like to live as a free child of God. Not even a hint. He goes on, look, not even a hint of impurity. Not even a hint of greed. Greed is just covetousness, desiring more stuff. Desiring more money, more power, more position. Not even a hint of that. Keep away from wanting more for yourself. Keep away from the tendency to gather in position, power, influence, money, stuff. Keep away from that, he's saying. And he's as firm on that as he is on sexual immorality. Both tendencies we find in our own hearts. This is a universal challenge. Paul is not pointing the finger at one group of society or one group of people and saying they're naughty, they're horrible, they're bad people. He's not saying that. He's saying there's all this stuff, there's a universal tendency. Who is on the throne of your life? We live in a culture which celebrates advancement, and I believe it should. I believe we should cheer people on as they make steps forward. I believe we should celebrate the moments in people's lives where they're, where they're doing well, and, and they're trying something new, and it's bringing great success. We should cheer each other on. But we also live in, uh, there's a tendency, there's a danger in that, that when we're self-advancing, when we're We're having great exploits when fame and fortune are coming our way. We pat each other on the back and we celebrate that. And I think that, in a sense, can be a little bit dangerous. It can feel very modern, but actually it's no different thousands of years ago. There's a battle. Who is on the throne? Jesus is calling us to live a life of love. Paul, in the rest of this passage, talks about living with thanksgiving and goodness and righteousness and truth. Wisdom, making the most of every opportunity, being filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord, with or without a guitar playing at the same time. Giving thanks to God. Just to keep on worshipping and delighting and rejoicing in Him. There's a danger when we read this, that we read these lists and we think, oh, there's a list of rules That's what I have to do for God to be happy with me. God's cross with me. God's upset with me. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy of his love. He's just disappointed in me. And if only I can do all the stuff in the purple and avoid the stuff in the red, then maybe he'll be pleased with me. God delights in you anyway. God is delighting in us. He's invited us to be his children. He's, he's, He's loving us. He's lavishing his love on us. But at the same time, there's a path that will lead us into freedom and continuing to walk as God's children in freedom. 
and that path set before us. And God's saying, go on. He's cheering us on to walk with him. You see, if you've ever been told the gospel and you were told this, come to Jesus. He'll forgive your sins. You'll go to heaven when you die. And that's it. That's the package you've been sold. I want to tell you today you've been shortchanged. And if that was... If that was recently, I'm sorry that that happened to you. If that was a long time ago, I'm sorry that happened to you because that's not the Christian message. The Christian message isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. The Christian message isn't that you just get to deal with your sin and go to heaven when you die. The, The Christian message is that we get invited to live for God now, that we get to be part of God's redeeming plan to change the whole universe, that everything might be different and we get to play our part too. I've said enough about the fact that God is reconciling the world to himself and inviting us to play along. This is the verse again. Living as dearly loved children and walking in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. You see, that call that God gives to live as light echoes to all of us now. Another verse for us. You were once in darkness, or you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Find out what pleases the Lord and have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do is in secret. Now this, for me, is the most exciting part. And I've only got a couple of minutes to unpack this. And I'm aware that reading that scripture, that might make you feel either excited or quite concerned right now, quite uncomfortable. But I want to take you back to a story from Luke chapter 5. And this will help us understand what this passage is talking about. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is starting the business of calling his disciples. And he gets into a boat that's owned by a man by the name of Peter. And he sits down and he teaches people. And with Peter in the boat and Jesus in the boat, there's some teaching going on. And when he's finished, Jesus says to Peter, set out from shore and go out to deeper water and put down the nets for a catch. Now, some of you are ahead of me, and you know what Peter said at this point. Peter said, but Lord, we've fished all night, and we've caught nothing. But because you say so, I'll do it. And so Peter sets down the nets, and and they discover, lo and behold, that when they draw them up again, the nets are full. Full to bursting, and they have to get help. And they have to get people to come and help them to get the fish into the boat. Great story. It's a wonderful miracle. But I want to point us to Peter's reaction. You see, Peter says this to Jesus. He looks at Jesus and he says, go away from me. Well, actually, he falls on his knees and says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Jesus sits in a boat, teaches, says, go out to collect some fish. Peter says, we haven't got any, but I'll do it anyway. They let down the nets, they pull them up, Peter says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. At what point, tell me, at what point did Jesus tell Peter that he was a dirty, rotten sinner? At what point did Jesus say to Peter, Peter, you're going on the wrong road, your life's a mess, you're heading for destruction, you're living in sin. At what point did Jesus call Peter out and call him a rotten sinner and tell him that he needed to get on his knees and bow down before Jesus? At what point did Jesus mention that? Anywhere? What Jesus does is lavish love and grace and provision on Peter and shows him the miraculous power of God, at which point Peter says, whoa, there's something going on here that I can't handle. Away from me, Lord. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. 
Jesus doesn't say anything, but he loves Peter and he demonstrates grace. You know, if you've ever been around someone whose life is different to yours, and it's better, you know there's just something. There's just something about that person's life that, that's attractive. You know, they live with confidence. They live with joy. There's something that's, that's just good about them. And, and when you're around those kind of people, you, kind of, you feel yourself, if you're not being envious and having another struggle, you, you can find yourself growing a little bit and think, well, I'd love to be a bit more like that. There's something aspirational. You, you see your own lack, but at the same time, it, it pulls you forward. And I want you to think about that for a moment. You see, when you're with that kind of person who pulls you forward out of the past you've been in and the, the small thinking and you see hope and possibility and future, you're not thinking. They, they usually haven't condemned you. They're just being them. They're, they're being them and full of hope and vigor and determination and, and you're seeing something different in them. That's exactly what is going on in this passage here. You and I are called to live as children of the light. If you're following Jesus today, if you've said yes to him and you've stepped through that gate that he sets out, not because you're clever enough, not because you're wise enough, but because you recognize that you need Jesus and you've started on that route, then we're followers of him. And the truth is this, it's not about us. It's about being part of God's redemptive plan to save the whole world. It really is. God is looking to save the world. He's looking for his children to be those who will live such good lives among other people that they will see their need of God. That's what he's looking for. In this passage, we read that our deeds are to expose the deeds of others, that we ourselves are to expose their deeds. And I want to just encourage you today that there will be times when You're living your life amongst people who don't know Jesus. And you'll need to be ready. We will need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. We'll need to be ready when someone says, why is your life different? And we'll be able to say it's different because of Jesus. It's different because of what he's done. The Bible tells us to live ready and have an answer for those who ask. But I want to encourage you. Our calling and our role is not to expose other people's sin by pointing out their sin. Our calling is to live such good lives, such godly lives, such Christ-honoring lives that other people go, there's something in them that I need. There's something in them that's attractive, that's calling me. I've got to find out what is it that makes them different, and it's then that we say it's because of Jesus. I can prove that to you, but from this very scripture. And if you look at the last line on the screen, it says this, It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. If Paul wanted us to be going around pointing out other people's sin who aren't yet Christians and calling it out, he wouldn't tell us to do something that's shameful. This very passage tells us it would be shameful to mention what the disobedient do in secret. You don't need to know what they do in secret. Our calling is to live godly lives that are followers of Christ, filled with his light, living his love, not enthroning ourselves but enthroning God, giving away, being generous, and gracious, and so cause people to ask, what must I do to find Christ? You know, over the years, people have done all sorts of things with good motives, I, I hope, to point out the sin in other people. Placards are held. People picket gay pride marches. They preach in the red light district against what's going on and whatever else. 
I'm not sure that's what anybody needs. The whole reason I think gay pride marches exist is as a response to persecution, acts being illegal, and people seeking comradeship and identity together. Jesus, when he's surrounded by people who are sinners, when he's got a prostitute or an immoral woman washing his feet, doesn't point out her sin. She doesn't need that. When she's washing his feet with her tears, he highlights her faith, not her sin. He doesn't diminish the sin. He's, he's not ever, ever pretending that she's not sinned. He's not ever pretending that what she's done has led her on the road to destruction. He knows that. But he's looking for faith. And he's pointing out faith. And he's saying, look at her faith. Woman, your faith, because of your faith, you are free. Your sin is forgiven. Go. What's our role? Is our role to be offended by sin? No, we can leave that to God. We don't need to fear sin of other people. We don't need to fear other people's immorality. We don't need to point it out or be afraid of it or or point the finger. Our role is to love and to love passionately and to present Christ and to enthrone God in our own lives that we might constantly bow the knee to him and live for him and say, God, I want to come up against those who are deep in sin and show Christ-likeness, to to live free of this stuff that we've been looking at today, to choose to run the other way and not live a life of compromise. Let me wrap this up with some application very quickly. Number one, our calling today is to be honest about the path that we're on and to answer the question, who's on the throne? We're free to choose, but just be honest. Secondly, Get help if you need it. Lydia's asked if if people want prayer, they can come to her and pray. I want to encourage you today, if you've discovered today as I've been speaking that the wrong person's on the throne, that actually in your life today, that you've got yourself on the throne and you'd love to put God on the throne, then you can ask for help. We'd love to pray with you. Thirdly, be real about the battle. I've been talking about some stuff and I've flicked over it really quickly and I haven't gone into it in any depth. But this is a a real battle and... um, In Genesis 4, right at the beginning of the Bible, we read this, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Be real about what the fight that we're in against sin. Number four, take action daily. I I know I've talked a little bit about sexual temptation. If lust is an issue, then don't let your eyes linger looking at somebody. Don't Don't take a second look. A guy called Gerald Coates said this years ago as a preacher. And he's, he was giving some advice to a crowd of people. And he said, he's trying, he was asked to define lust. And he said, lust isn't admiring a beautiful person as they cross a zebra crossing. Lust is when I look in my rearview mirror for another look. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, help, have that if it's helpful to you. Uh, fifthly, choose life daily. Choose life. God's, this, this stuff we've been looking at today is not a list of commands that we do. It's about the orientation of our lives. It's about the direction, about who's enthroned. Choose life. Number six, enjoy the journey. Enjoy loving Jesus and following him and serving him. As I said earlier, happiness is a poor destination, but it's a great traveling companion. And finally, live a life of love amongst others. We are called by him to live in love. We're called not to enthrone ourselves, but to love him and to love others. And we're called to live such a close life amongst other people that their own needs and situation will be exposed. And they'll say, what must I do to be saved? 
and we'll be able to say, let me show you. There's one who loves you. There's one who died for you. There's one I'm remembering today who gave everything in self-sacrifice to pay the price that you could be free. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, today I thank you that you died for us. As we've been thinking about other people who paid a price, the ultimate price of giving their lives, we think of you who gave everything for us too. And Lord, you gave everything that we might be free. And Lord, at times I think I've interpreted that, that, that I'm just free and I can, I'm going to go to heaven one day when I die and that's about it really and live for you a bit now. But Lord, the calling you've placed on our lives is so much bigger. It's so much greater. You've called us to live as children of yours, living with love, in our hearts and in our actions. God, you've called us to pour out our lives for you and for the cause of Christ. Lord, I pray very specifically that you would free us from self-centeredness. I pray that you would free us from legalism, that we would not look at this message today as another list of rules that we've got to keep, but instead an invitation to walk with you freely. Thirdly, I pray that you would give us such courage and boldness to live joy-filled lives as we set our course upon you and your calling to redeem creation. Amen.